Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. All of us know about P.T. Barnum's extraordinary career as a showman, entrepreneur, and creator of the greatest show on earth. But there's another side of Barnum almost no one knows about, and that's the subject of this special audio documentary podcast, which I wrote and produced for Connecticut. Connecticut Public Television as a companion to the American Experience documentary The Circus at cptv.org backslash The Circus. It's called Barnum's Connecticut, and I guarantee you it'll show a side of this world-changing impresario that will challenge anything you think about him right now. Welcome to CPTV's audio documentary, Barnum's Connecticut. At UConn Health, collaboration is everything. The team is everything. Links in a chain of life. All of us joined with each of us. What is and what could be. Welcome to Possible. Learn more at health.uconn.edu. I'm Walt Woodward, Connecticut State Historian and Associate Professor of History at UConn Hartford. And Connecticut Public Television asked me to tell the story about P.T. Barnum, the man who is arguably Connecticut's most important native son. In our first episode, we traveled to the 69th Annual Circus History Convention in Baraboo, Wisconsin, to learn how the world's greatest showman helped turn the circus into the greatest show on earth. In this episode, we'll explore the lesser-known but no less fascinating story about the many roles Barnum played here in the state he loved. Telling that story requires a road trip, too, but this time to Bridgeport, the city Barnum helped create and called home for much of his life. There, I met with Kathy Marr, the executive director of the Barnum Museum. She explained to me that Barnum's roots in Connecticut ran very deep indeed. The Barnum family goes back to the 17th century in Connecticut, and his family settled in Bethel, very rural community. He was one of 12 children, and Barnum says very young. He did not like the agrarian lifestyle. It just was not for him. When he was 12, he had the opportunity to go on a cattle herd down to lower Manhattan. And he, at 12 years old, he was fascinated and captured by the the metropolis. That was his path. Somehow, some way, that was going to be his destination. So he was just like every Fairfield County person today. He's a New York commuter. (laughs) Barnum married Charity Hallett at 19 in 1829. And after a brief sojourn in the city, the couple returned to Connecticut, where Barnum found his first financial success as a lottery agent. He found uh, a niche. He was actually becoming very um, wealthy being a lottery agent in Connecticut. Lotteries were sanctioned by the church and state at that time, and they were very lucrative for the agent. Connecticut reversed its legislation, and that income disappeared. And he said, the only place that I can really make this kind of money is I've got to take my family to New York. After trying his hand at various careers in Connecticut and New York, which included running a boarding house and then a pub, being a peddler and then a trader, editing a newspaper and clerking in a general store, Barnum at age 25 came into his own, 
when he took the plunge into the entertainment business. On that day, in July 1835, Barnum, according to one historian, gave birth to modern American popular culture. And he did it with an attraction that Barnum believed could not fail, one that leaves us today just scratching our heads in wonder. The attraction was a woman named Joyce Heth. Barnum had heard about her when he was down in in Philadelphia area. Now, the story was that she was the 161-year-old nurse to George Washington. And she was an African-American woman. And she was an African-American woman. She came with papers of slavery, yes. Now, Barnum purchases her interest, and he sets up a tour where she would sing hymns and tell stories about little George on her knee. It just went on and on. And he would spend hours inking playbills that would go ahead of the upcoming tour where she was going to be presented. So people were automatically intrigued. This was the key about this. It didn't matter if it was real or not. What he was delivering was curiosity. And you, in a new democratic America, had a choice of believing it or not. Under Barnum's management, Joyce Heth proved an astonishing success. Opening in New York, she drew huge crowds and press interests there and throughout Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. At each performance, curious onlookers were shown, as evidence of her authenticity, a bill of sale from Augustine Washington, George's father, to her later owner. Half and a series of subsequent hoaxes, such as the half-monkey, half-fish Fiji mermaid, made Barnum's reputation and put him on the fast track to wealth. One wonders what the draw of these humbugs, the 19th century term Barnum used for them, was for the thousands and thousands of people who paid to view them. Joe Dobrow, marketing expert and author of Pioneers in Promotion, How Press Agents for P.T. Barnum, Buffalo Bill, and the World's Columbian Exposition Created Modern Marketing, explains. The notion of humbug has, I think, transformed in its meaning from that century to this one. But in the 19th century, it was a fairly common term, and it essentially meant an elaborate hoax. It wasn't a stunt. It wasn't, uh, I would say, an intentional deception so much as a challenge. This was Barnum trying to push people to say... I'm entertaining you, but I'm doing this in a clever way. Can you figure it out? If all he were trying to do is to pull the wool over people's eyes, that probably would have been a lot easier. But but Barnum was very clever in the way that he built these. And whether it was the, the tour of Joyce Heth in 1835, the Fiji mermaid, or the uh, quote-unquote creature who was called What Is It? All of these were puzzling to a, a curious world that was just beginning to uh, awaken to all of the wonders of of the, of the planet. It was a time of great wonder and not a time of great knowledge. And so Barnum's hoaxes, his humbugs, fit right into that because they really did challenge people to figure, see if you can figure out if this is real or not. Buoyed by his successes, Barnum set up the institution that was to provide the foundation for his innovation, his international fame, and the fortune that saw him become only the second millionaire in American history. Here's Kathy Marr from the Barnum Museum again. 
1842. He is the designer of what we know today as the modern museum. It was a combination of all types of curiosities, whether they were living or artificial. His major success was the American Museum in Lower Broadway in New York City, which ran full operation for almost 30 years and actually entertained millions of people in its lifetime. It was everything from America's first aquarium, its first zoo. People could come and spend an entire day exploring wonders that you just had no idea existed in a world that really had a limited accessibility to anything. He knew somehow what people wanted before they even knew what they wanted. Sharon Grimberg, writer, producer, and director of the American Experience documentary, The Circus, told me in a phone interview that one of the keys to the success of Barnum's museum was that he invented new ways to appeal to a brand new audience for popular entertainment. He created a lot of the things that we associate with entertainment. You know, he came up with a matinee. He really made um, entertainment respectable for middle-class people before the middle of the 19th century. Entertainment of all kinds was kind of deemed not respectable, and he made a huge effort to turn that around and to invite middle-class people into his into his museum. That was incredibly important in the development of entertainment in the States and also of the circus. Kathy Marr. What Barnum was actually doing was hiring families in different, from different countries, whether it's Germany or China, Japan, and bringing them to the American Museum where they would be presented in levees on a stage that was appointed elegantly where people could actually see people from China wearing their traditional clothing, their music, their instruments, the sounds. So it was immersive. Americans who might have been living in New Jersey or in rural Connecticut, this is mind-blowing. These are cultures that are thousands of years old with completely different textures. So he's introducing the world to Americans for the first time. Barnum believed the world was for everybody, and it was okay for the highbrow to enjoy going to the moral lecture theater to see a show. But what's very important about what Barnum did with the moral lecture room, of course, it was completely temperance. There was a teetotaler pledge outside those doors. He was making sure that the scripts were appropriate to to the more genteel audiences. Even as Barnum was finding fame and fortune in the city, he turned his entrepreneurial eye back to Connecticut and especially to the little soundside town of Bridgeport. Barnum's one brother comes to to Bridgeport, and he creates a hotel for very practical reasons. The train lines are here, the ferry's here, and you needed the accommodations, the taverns, whatever it might have been. So Barnum, visiting his brother, really sees and is familiar with Bridgeport. But what Barnum recognizes, because he was always calculating, everything Barnum did was strategic. And the reason Bridgeport was so appealing to him is... It was already a natural industrial hub opportunity. The trains were already thriving. It's right on the Long Island Sound. The ferry company was already driving. And, of course, the Boston Post Road. All of these forms of transportation we are still using today. That was Barnum's route. So he saw those opportunities already in place, and it was beautiful. The Long Island Sound, the seashore, was not developed the way we see it today. So it offered a sense of beauty. So it gave him joy. And then New York is where he worked. Barnum's first major investment in Bridgeport 
was an exotically beautiful showplace residence. So Iranistan was Barnum's first major Bridgeport country estate. Modeled after the Brighton Pavilion in England, Barnum had been to England and he saw this exotic palace and he wanted his own. And he was certainly making enough money that he was able to build this extraordinary mansion with huge onion domes, beautiful gardens and conservatories. It was nothing that people in this country would have seen, unless you were very well-traveled. And it's early, too. This way predated the Newport mansions that we all know. This is 1847. This, This was the showstopper. Perhaps Barnum gave Bridgeport its first great exotic mansion because Bridgeport had given him the means to build that mansion through a diminutive young boy named Charles Stratton, who the world came to know as Tom Thumb. I think it's one of the most endearing love stories believe it or not, Barnum's brother living in Bridgeport knew about the Stratton family here in town. And he just said, they have a son. He's just stopped growing, but he's just the most charming, adorable little entertainer you'd ever see. He might work for the American Museum. So Barnum was on a way back from a trip and he stopped here in Bridgeport and he set up a meeting to meet the Stratton family. Now, Charles was only four or five years old. He was a little boy, and Barnum was just totally charmed, totally charmed um, by him. And he just said, I, you know, I think my brother is right. I said, this could be something special. And he worked out, he negotiated a contract uh, with the Stratton family to hire him, pay a salary, room, board, and also provided service for his parents being caretakers of their son. And they were compensated as well, also made sure he had his education. And they went to New York, but quickly he realized he could take him on the road. So Barnum did. He needed to have a grand name. So it became General Tom Thumb, the mythological Tom Thumb, but give him rank. And then ultimately they did go off to England and met the crown heads of state. They met the queen in England. They were close-up engagements where Tom would literally sing directly to the queen and the royal family. So her children were captivated. At the end of the day, the queen was also a mother. And to see her children that happy and engaged must have just made her beam. And apparently it did. They stayed in communication you know, with the royal family long after that engagement. The wonderful thing about Tom and Barnum, and we actually have in a copy book uh, from literally from the tour to Europe, a little, you know how kids like at Thanksgiving, you take a pen and you draw out your handprint and you make it a turkey or something. There's a little handprint of Tom's in the book that you could actually see his size. And you've it's, got that here. At we the have museum. that here in the museum. It is spectacular to see. It's just, it almost gives you chills because there they both were. Barnum's tour with Tom Thumb made him America's first international entertainment impresario. And as his fame and fortune grew, so did his commitment to Bridgeport and Connecticut. Always a visionary, he next undertook creating a model industrial community a half mile from the center of Bridgeport. With local lawyer William Noble, he purchased 225 acres on the east bank of the Pequannock River and began recruiting industrialists to bring their factories to a city intended to work for both them and their employees. It was a complete utopian vision on Barnum's part. He wanted to make sure every skilled working force member of the community had a place to call their own, that it didn't become tenement housing, that 
the land was parceled out for housing developments. So um, this is a planned community. This is a planned in the mid nineteenth century. In the mid nineteenth century, absolutely. And what was integrated into the housing were churches, were parks, ultimately a hospital. Every amenity that people needed to have healthy lives, lives with well-being, that's what he was really designing. And it, it worked. It actually worked for quite a long time. It's interesting. What he realized is the companies that he was enticing to come to Bridgeport, whether it was Union Metallic Cartridge, Wheeler Wilson Manufacturing Company, um, Warner Brothers, they needed skilled workers. They needed smart workers that were going to be on game all the time. Now, no matter what the salary of a worker was, Barnum instructed his business people to sit down and negotiate a livable payment for owning your own home. So that's really how how that community worked. If you were an upstanding person, enriching the lives of the people around you, you deserve to own your own home because that works for everybody. All boats rise with the tide. Now, interestingly, because he was such a temperance champion, if it was known that you drank or if you smoked or you know if you had problems that you could not elevate beyond that, you were off the list. So in his planned city, nobody drank, nobody smoked, everybody worked hard, they didn't pay too much for their housing, and they lived happily ever after. They lived happily ever after, and it seemed to have worked quite well. For all his successes, Barnum's career was marked by setbacks, too, including an ill-considered investment in a clock company he intended to relocate to East Bridgeport. That literally bankrupted him, but only temporarily. Fires also, one apparently set by Southern sympathizers in the Civil War, twice destroyed his American museum. Another burned his exotic Iranistan to cinders. In every case, though, Barnum bounced back, moving from the museum into the circus business and from Iranistan to a second Barnum home called Lindencroft, and then, with his wife Charity experiencing chronic illness, to a new mammoth home that combined, in Barnum's words, the greatest convenience with the maximum comfort, Waldemere. They moved closer to the Long Island Sound, had that view, had that breeze, and they built Waldemere. And then two other houses were built on the site of their land for two of his daughters. Barnum made his presence felt everywhere in Bridgeport, in central city office buildings, public parks, and an array of civic projects. Now one of, if not the most important person in a growing industrial city, Barnum, in 1865, was nominated, ran for, and won a Republican seat in the Connecticut General Assembly. And although he was a freshman legislator with no prior political experience, Barnum made his presence felt right from the start. I talked to Sally Whipple, executive director of the Old State House in Hartford, about Representative Barnum's impact. The thing I love about his story is that he just doesn't wait until the day legislative session opens. He comes up the night before and he begins politicking immediately. He's coming into the legislature as a junior representative, but he knows the world and he knows the people and he knows what he thinks and he knows what he wants to have happen. So he seems to immediately assess the situation, who's on this side of this issue and that side of that issue, makes his approach that night, and he affects leadership of the House. He was a party man, but he wasn't partisan. 
And he wasn't a wire puller, which was their way of saying somebody pulling the puppet strings. Barnum was a man of many political opinions, and he was also a man with a cause. He was extremely passionate about freedom for African-Americans following the Civil War. And so one of the things that he said in his autobiography was that he wanted to run for office in order to vote for the 13th Amendment, which would abolish slavery throughout the United States. Barnum came into office a month after Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. So securing Connecticut's ratification of the U.S. Constitution's 13th Amendment was a relatively easy undertaking. But that wasn't enough for Barnum. He then called on his fellow legislators to approve a public referendum to change the Connecticut Constitution to allow African Americans to vote. In an impassioned and eloquent speech to the assembly, Barnum noted that the provision in the 1818 state constitution explicitly limiting the vote only to white men had been a concession to Southern plantation owners who did business in the state and that it needed to be changed. No other New England state, he said, has ever so disgraced herself. Sally Whipple. When he talked about that, it really gave me a sense of the breadth of history, the length of history here. The Constitutional Convention of 1818 was held in the old state house, And then years later, here is P.T. Barnum, of all people, coming back and saying, look at what you guys did in 1818. It was wrong, and we need to address that and change it and make it right. And it happens in the very same building. They take the vote in the very same building. And I found that a wonderful way to look at Connecticut history and how things change over time, how attitudes change. One of the persons whose attitudes may most have changed over time is P.T. Barnum himself. Though he adamantly called himself a lifelong champion for equal rights for all, it's hard for many people to reconcile the man who exhibited the aged slave Joyce Heth with the outspoken civil rights advocate Barnum unquestionably was in 1865. Some historians accuse Barnum of being overtly racist and exploitative throughout his career as a showman. Others see him as a more positive force for social justice in the context of his times. What is clear is that in 1865, Barnum's views were much more progressive than many of his fellow Connecticans. There were several people working alongside him, including the governor, trying to get white taken out of that clause. It passed the House, it passed the legislature, and then went out for a referendum on October 2nd of 1866. And the people of Connecticut voted it down by 5,000 votes. So the word white was not stricken from our Constitution in Connecticut until 1876. In addition to promoting civil rights legislation, Barnum did not hesitate to take on the state's most powerful private interest, the railroads. Well, the railroads, he felt, were having an unfair advantage in the legislature because they had lobbyists who were really um, controlling some of the people in the legislature and having things go their own way. And a lot of historians agree with his view on that. So what he did was he worked to affect who was in charge of committees. He had the railroad committee chair replaced. He had the commissioner of the railroad replaced so that he lessened their power in the legislature. Barnum recognized that railroads provided a really important service to people. But he also recognized that if they were too powerful, 
powerful and had too much control over the government or people's lives, it wouldn't be a good situation. He even said once, a great railroad company like Fire is a good servant, but a bad master. Of special interest to Barnum and many of his Fairfield County constituents was the issue of commuter fares. They had set lower rates for commuters to buy train tickets. So people were moving away from the city and out to places like Bridgeport and then commuting back into New York with a lower commuter rate. Not very different than what people do today. The piece that really got Barnum mad was that they wanted to raise the rates on commuters four times more than the rates on regular people who were just traveling from place to place. And he felt that was unfair. It was almost a bait and switch. And he didn't feel that it was proper for the railroads to do that to people. One of Barnum's most memorable moments as a legislator came during one of his anti-railroad speeches. He is delivering an impassioned speech, as he seems to have done quite frequently, on the House floor. And in the middle of his speech, he's handed a telegram. He looks at it and he puts it down and resumes his speech. Afterwards, he tells one of his fellow representatives from Winstead that he had just gotten the message that his museum in Manhattan was on fire and that total destruction was certain. A local newspaper reported that Barnum had been given this telegram in the middle of his speech about the railroads And without the slightest evidence of agitation, he laid the telegram upon his desk and finished his speech. And everybody who observed this, he said, noted that he had no change in facial expression, that he gave no hint that something bad was happening at that moment, even though he knew he was losing that entire museum that he had built in a gigantic fire. Overall, Barnum served four terms as a state legislator, during which he advanced some very forward-looking legislation. In addition to universal male suffrage, he advocated ending capital punishment, putting a railroad bridge across the Connecticut River, and ending Connecticut's time-honored practice of having two state capitals. It's hard for a lot of people to believe that Connecticut at one time had two state capitals. There was one capital in New Haven and one capital in Hartford. And the legislature actually moved back and forth every year. Even the Connecticut State Library, which was in this building, was packed up in a box and brought down to New Haven and returned to Hartford. And this was the case from 1701 until Barnum decided to change things. Recognizing that the old state houses were no longer fit to purpose, he made a strong effort to secure the erection of new edifices in both cities. Then came to realize that perhaps Connecticut is a small enough state that it could benefit from having only one state capital. And so they do vote on it and they end up having one state capital. And that was built in 1878. And of course, that capital ended up being in Hartford. Barnum also had a highly moralistic side, born of his universalist religious convictions and his midlife conversion to temperance, that is, refusing to drink alcohol. Barnum's moralism is best seen legislatively in his appointment as head of the House Temperance Committee in 1878 and his subsequent engineering of passage of Connecticut's complete ban on contraception in 1879. This law, restricting use, sale, or promotion of contraceptive devices or practices to anyone, stood on the books until 1965, when it was overturned in the landmark Supreme Court case of Griswold v. Connecticut. 
If Barnum's moralism won him kudos in the state legislature, it received an altogether different welcome when Barnum served as mayor of Bridgeport in 1875. In that post, he sought to impose some of the righteous living standards he had instituted in his model community of East Bridgeport on its neighbor across the river. Kathy Marr. Being the mayor gave him the opportunity to ensure utilities. He wanted to clean up the streets. He wanted to get control of crime. So he had a very specific platform. That platform included very strict enforcement of liquor laws, shutting down the city's gambling hells and brothels, reducing the size of city government, and providing forced employment for the city's class of loungers and loafers. Barnum quickly found himself at all-out war with Bridgeport's Democratic Council, aldermen, and their allies in the press. After only nine months, Barnum announced he would leave office at the end of his one-year term, saying, No one can congratulate me on the event more heartily than I do myself. So it was a quick in and quick out. He didn't run for re-election. Barnum left the mayor's office, but his commitment to Bridgeport continued. His focus now was the circus business he'd entered into as a retirement project at age 60 and which he and partners James L. Hutchinson and James A. Bailey were building into the greatest show on earth. In 1880, the three men bought and enclosed a 10-acre lot in Bridgeport adjacent to the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad tracks and turned it into the winter quarters for their mammoth enterprise. They built a 100-foot square elephant house, separate buildings for the wildcats, other caged animals, amphibious animals, and the monkeys, stables for 700 horses, a nursery for newborn animals, and a veterinary facility, harness, paint, and blacksmith shop. A 300-foot-long building covered eight tracks of circus rail cars, and a circus ring was built so acrobats and riders could stay in practice. That was just the beginning. Circling this huge plot of land is the housing, because it takes hundreds of people. When you think about a circus traveling, a show, a great show on earth traveling, it's a community traveling. And, and during the winter months, things had to get repaired, get everybody rested for the next season. They came to Bridgeport. Though the winter quarters were closed to the public for safety reasons, one of the advantages of having the facility in Bridgeport is that it could be used to stage media events. Joe Dobrow describes how Tody Hamilton, Barnum's chief public relations promoter, used the winter quarters to get coverage from the New York press. One of his favorite tactics was that at the, uh, at the winter quarters in Bridgeport, he would invite newspaper reporters up from New York or wherever, and he would always find some way to generate a story that would make it into the news under the front page of the newspaper in anticipation of the opening of the Barnum and Bailey show, which was often at Madison Square Garden. Sometimes that meant experiments. And we can cringe at them a little bit today, but again, let's, let's put it in its historical context. So, for example, there was an experiment in which Toady set out pans of beer and whiskey in the polar bear's cage to see what it would do. Or there was another time when he invited reporters in and they put a mouse in the lion's cage to say, okay, let's put this old wives' tale to the test. Are they really terrified of this little creature? And there was even one year in which Toady set up the dinner for the visiting press corps inside the wild animal cage with the wild animals in there. 
And so the trade paper, the fourth estate, was commenting about this, and it said, not everybody decided to partake in dinner that night, but some did, and they enjoyed the meal very much. These were not real news events. They didn't belong on the front page of the newspaper, but they were so clever, and they were so interesting, and they were so different that they, they found their way there. One of the animals who wintered over in Bridgeport, at least for the short time he was alive here, was an elephant so popular and well-known that his name actually entered our dictionary as a term for something of very, very large size. Janet Davis, lead historian on the American Experience documentary The Circus, tells us about Jumbo. So Jumbo is an Abyssinian elephant, and he's from Africa. He's lives in London at the London Zoo. People take rides on him, and then Barnum buys him. But he comes over in the early 1880s, and his departure from London is a source of sensational kind of grieving because people loved Jumbo. And his arrival in New York is another cultural sensation. And this, of course, is well-primed because Barnum, again, being such a master of publicity, has already prepared the public for, for the arrival of Jumbo, this towering, towering Abyssinian elephant. And so when he arrives, it is a kind of spectacle in its own right with people lining the streets, Jumbo mania taking hold. And he is a sensation throughout his career, his short career. It's really a sad end because in Canada, again, he's being walked to the train and he's being walked on the railroad tracks. Matthew Scott is, you know, his beloved keeper and he is killed by a train. Jonathan Lee Iverson, the man who had the distinction of being the first African-American ringmaster of the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus in 1999, as well as the ringmaster in that circus's final performance after a 146-year run, uses his own experience to help us understand what the almost magic appeal of elephants such as Jumbo was. The elephant is, is the circus. Um... People have never come to a traditional circus to see two-legged mammals. They just don't. They, they come for the four-legged ones. And as two-legged mammals, we accept the fact, and it's a very humbling fact, that when you work for a Ringling Brothers show, or really any traditional circus, you were second billing. You could be the most talented human being that God ever created. And I can tell you right now, if a four-legged mammal just walks on stage, walks on that arena floor, you're going to be upstage. And when you see elephants, I mean, I, I can't imagine how much the public learned about that animal because of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey and so many other animals. They're the only giants we know of on Earth. And to see that up close and personal, to be able to touch their skin and to smell them and, and to be able to engage with them is really a wonderful privilege. Barnum circuses always featured great numbers of exotic animals as well as herds of workhorses. As a result, Barnum was subject to close scrutiny from those whose major concern was protecting animals' welfare. 
None of those was more observant of Barnum than Henry Berg, the founder of the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the ASPCA. Janet Davis. In 1880, in April, Barnum is performing at Madison Square Garden, opening the show, you know, the season, and this is something that happened every year. And he had a horse named Salamander, who was a fire horse, who would jump through a fiery hoop. And so Henry Berg, who was the president of the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which was the nation's first organized, incorporated animal protection society, founded in 1866. And so Berg really was uncomfortable with this Fire Horse Act. And the reason, it wasn't so much that the horse was a performing horse, he was worried about pain. He thought any kind of movement through a fiery hoop, that's gotta hurt. And so he planned to bring his team of officers who had the power of arrest. So he's gonna raid the circus right. with these enforcers. Yeah, yeah, so they're gonna you know, come and they're gonna do their, do their job. But so Barnum, knew all of this, and so Barnum was really, again, such a clever showman, he saw an opportunity for publicity. So what he did was he decided, okay, with Berg and his team here, I am gonna show him that I can jump through a fire hoop and it doesn't hurt one bit. So Barnum jumps through the hoop as Berg and his men are standing there, and a whole bunch of his clowns also jump through the hoop with fire, you know, going. And Berg just said, basically, okay, Barnum, you got me. That's that. So the other thing that happens, though, is that Barnum, basically, you know, he and Berg agreed about pain and suffering. Berg is an early generation animal advocate. His main concern was the prevention of cruelty and cruelty being defined as flogging, beating, causing pain. Captivity itself was not the primary focus in this era or the act of training an animal because later generations saw both captivity and then training as being cruel in and of themselves. In fact, Barnum becomes the vice president of the Bridgeport SPCA. He and Berg became friends. He left money to the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in his will. And he also funded the erection of a statue of Berg in Bridgeport. And Barnum took to calling himself the Berg of Bridgeport. And the statue he funded is still there. Yeah. It's amazing. It is amazing. I asked Kathy Marr of the Barnum Museum to tell me more about the Berg statue. It's a little statue of a horse. It's at the mouth of Seaside Park, you know, where Barnum Barnum lived. But it's up on a high pedestal where a little lion uh, spigot would have been for the horses to actually get a drink. So it was functional as well, certainly reflective of the cause. It wasn't just a statue to be a statue. It was a statue that could actually help animals because they were working. Barnum was a bit of a workhorse himself. A man of immense energy and creative drive, he remained enthusiastically entrepreneurial right up to his final days. In October 1890, the 80-year-old Barnum wrote, I eat, sleep, and walk like a boy of 16. 
Among the projects he pursued that year were real estate investments in Colorado, building a huge luxury summer hotel along the Long Island Sound, and the construction in East Bridgeport of a new sailing schooner to be named the P.T. Barnum. Mindful of the passing years, though, Barnum had also begun to think about his legacy, and he spent much time laying out the details of what would be his legacy gift to Bridgeport. The Barnum Museum on Main Street here in downtown is really the last surviving building fully attributed to Barnum. There's certainly nothing like it uh, anywhere else in Connecticut. It is Romanesque, exotic influence, um, Richardsonian in, in a lot of ways, but it's a massive timber dome that sits on three major floors. The exterior is banded by decorative friezes that actually tell the story of the city's history up until its moment. You have the regional Indians depicted in these massive friezes, which are beautiful. You have the settlers, you have the Industrial Revolution, you have the Civil War. I mean, it takes you up to the moment in time where the building was built, so completed in 1893. And then other friezes below that are have all kinds of animals. You can see monkeys and birds. People come today, they think it's a circus museum. It actually, on in, you know, in stone on the building, it is the Barnum Institute of Science and History. And that is his final gift to society. Barnum intended his institute to house the Bridgeport Scientific Society and the Fairfield County Historical Societies and the Medical Associations, research and cultural organizations that didn't have a home. So the third floor of the Barnum Museum is a place where Thomas Edison spoke. They debated the viability of electricity in this building. The Wright brothers spoke here. Curators from the American Museum of Natural History spoke here. So it was, it was a think tank. It was a place for community engagement and intellectual exchange. Weeks before he passed away, on the front page of the Bridgeport newspaper is an illustration of the building exactly the way it looks today, talked about what was going to be inside. It was really a reflection of of the early American museum without living specimens. It was all about science. By January of 1891, Barnum knew the end was drawing near. He told a friend then, I have an old heart and the doctors cannot cure an old heart. With friends and aides, he began to set his house in order. Playful to the last, though, he conspired with his public relations man, Toady Hamilton, for one last surprise, Joe Dobra. On Barnum's deathbed, he brings Toady Hamilton in, and um, it's hard to say whether it was uh, one of their inventions or both of them, but they decide that Barnum would really like to see what the newspapers would write about him when he's dead. And so Toady Hamilton brings in one of the New York newspapers, and uh, they write his obituary, and they print his obituary, what turns out to be, I believe, about three weeks before he actually dies. Barnum died on April 7, 1891, and was buried in the place he'd chosen years before in Bridgeport's Mountain Grove Cemetery, across from the grave of his friend, Charles Stratton, Tom Thumb. In addition to the Barnum Museum, Two monuments continue to attest to Barnum's enduring influence on the city he loved and the state he called home. One is the seated bronze statue of Barnum in Bridgeport's Seaside Park, looking out on Long Island Sound. 
Sculpted by Thomas Ball in 1888, it was placed in the park near Barnum's last home shortly after his death and remains a powerful testament to Barnum's life and its importance. The second monument is much smaller. In 1936, Bridgeport officials obtained congressional approval to mint 25,000 commemorative silver half dollars honoring Bridgeport's first century as a city. They chose P.T. Barnum for the face of that coin. Two generations after he died, Barnum was not only singled out as Bridgeport's all-time most important citizen, he became the only Connecticut ever to appear on a United States coin. Bridgeport's silver commemorative half-dollars originally sold for $2 each, with profits used to help fund the Bridgeport Centennial Celebration. Today, a Barnum half-dollar in near-perfect condition can be bought for just over $4,000. It's hard to think of a better tribute to the man widely considered the father of modern mass entertainment, the man who best knew how to make money by making people happy. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Kathy Marr, Sally Whipple, Connecticut Public Television, Carol Sisko, Dancy Bauer, and Katie Tolarski. If you enjoyed this podcast, then you'll want to head right over to cptv.org backslash the circus for my other Barnum podcast documentary called Barnum Circus. In that podcast, a group of circus experts and I tell the story of how Barnum and circuses came together at a crucial moment in American history with results that changed circuses forever and transformed both America and the world of entertainment. Listen or download now at cptv.org backslash the circus. And for more great stories about Connecticut history, read or subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for a special Grating the Nutmeg Historic Holiday Recipes podcast with historian Keith Stavely and Kathleen Fitzgerald, coming up on Grating the Nutmeg.